Did you ever wonder why you could be eating a healthy whole food diet and still not getting better? Hi, this is Dr. Mercola helping you take control of your health. And today we are joined by a leading expert, a truly innovative novel thinker who can answer that question. And that, that individual is Dr. Stephen Gundry who is trained as a cardiothoracic surgeon, doesn't do much of that anymore. He really uh, focuses on treating people naturally. And he actually worked at the National Institutes of Health for, for uh, with a prestigious fellowship there and uh, was a professor of surgery and pediatrics in cardiothoracic surgery and head of that surgery department at the Loma Linda University School of Medicine in California, which you might recognize as being uh, popular for uh, vegetarian proponents. So he's got quite an interesting background. There's no question. You guys know that I uh, read about 150 books a year. Most of those are health books. And it gets, I can read many of these books. The reason I can read so many is that well, I walk for two hours a day on the beach, but I also, I can, a lot, of, a lot of these books I can read in under an hour because they're just saying the same old stuff and you don't have to read it a hundred times to know it. So, but Dr. Gundry's book, which is The Plant Paradox, is not one of those. It's it's really, truly a resource you need to, to have and understand in your library if you're at all interested about health because uh, my, my biggest disappointment with the book is that I didn't read it before I published my book. So, because I would have integrated a lot of it, what he has in there about the lectins and uh, these, the plant paradox and fat fuel, I believe are the two best books for health books for 2017. So with all that preface, welcome and thank you for joining us today. Well, th thanks for having me. I'm, 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 obviously I'm a big fan of yours as well. And uh, let me meet you. Well, great. So um, I think we should probably, I'll let you, you take, take control here because you're really the expert in this area. But the prime, the primary focus of your book, as I understand it, is to really understand the issue that these plant lectins have, these proteins that they make in defense, and that you've been studying for well over a decade and seeing truly profoundly amazing results just from applying these principles. So why don't we start at the beginning, which talks about which and help people understand what a lectin is? Yeah, so the easiest way to think about lectins, um, plants were clearly here first. Uh, even some of my evangelical Christians will give me the fact that plants were here for 48 hours before the rest of us arrived. Uh, and they, they had it really good before animals arrived because nobody wanted to eat them. The, from an evolutionary standpoint, evolutionary principles apply to all creatures, whether they're animals or plants. And that is that any creature like a plant wants to grow and thrive and wants to propagate, wants to have babies and make sure they grow and thrive. Now, when you didn't have a predator, uh, that was a pretty nice time. But when insects, which were the first predator, arrived uh, about 60 million years after plants established on land, now plants had a problem. They couldn't run, they couldn't hide, they couldn't fight. But as you and I know, plants are incredible chemists. You know, they're in fact alchemists. And so they use chemical warfare or biological warfare to thwart their predators. 
And they have a number of systems, but the one I focus on in the book, because I think it's easy to understand, are lectins. And I'm saying lectins, L-E-C-T-I-N-S, and not lecithin and not leptin, the hunger hormone. And so these are proteins that plants manufacture, and they're sometimes called sticky proteins because they, in general, seek out certain sugar molecules on the surface of cells uh, to bind to. And I like to think of it as they hack into our communication system or any predator's communication system. And they, for instance, insects, they attack a sugar called sialic acid, which among other things, it sits between the endings of nerves and nerve one nerve talks to the other nerve by acetylcholine jumping through that space and sialic acid allows that to happen and lectins bind to sialic acid and so interrupt nerve transmission. Now, if you think about it, paralyzing an insect is a really great defense system because if the insect can't move, bingo, you've solved the problem. And one of the things I've learned through the years through my patients is we're just a giant insect to a plant. And what may happen to an insect fairly instantaneously by eating some plant lectins may take years and years and years in us who are giant insects to manifest. And it may manifest as neuropathy, may manifest as brain fog, uh, it may manifest as arthritis or heart disease, but the longer I've done this now, the more I'm convinced that almost every disease process that I've come in contact with, we can trace back to in one way of us interacting inappropriately with plant lectins. Um, so that's a long-winded explanation for how plants don't like us, and they absolutely don't want to be eaten. And they've had 400 million years to work out defense systems. Um, Really long time. Okay, well, thank you for that preface. And uh, what impressed me most about your book is that our recommendations, for the most part, are really almost identical, which is the only other time I've, at least from food perspectives, I've seen that is with Dave Asprey's book, Headstrong. Because not many people get it. I mean, they really don't. But the food recommendations are just straight on target. The only difference is the exclusion of these uh, plants that have these lectins. And for the most part, we, we you know, there's, the fat for fuel doesn't really recommend any, that many. But there's a few that sneak through, like some of the seeds and cucumbers, and certainly nightshade vegetables. So. Um, there are, they're, they're, you know, they're really aligned. And as I said earlier, I'm going to, well, I'm, we're putting a, a cookbook in the fall for Fat for Fuel, and we're integrating the lectin exclusion component because I think it's so crucial. But, um, you, you know, it, it, you really, you do such a great job in the book of explaining the co- relatively complex science and going into the great details of that, yet providing 
uh, a practical strategy, which is a tough assignment to do, to bridge the gap, because usually you make the mistake going too easy or, or too technical, but you seem to have done a really nice job of integrating both of those together. So uh, I'm wondering maybe if now we can, well, I think one of the observations that seems to be useful is that the, the, your plant paradox approach targets the mitochondria and the microbiome, which is really the, thru the thrust of getting healthy. And not many physicians, certain, certain, even in, in integrative medicine physicians, understand the importance of mitochondrial function, but you certainly do. So why don't you expand on the integration of those two? Yeah, so one of the things that's interesting to me, uh, my background uh, at Yale was human evolutionary biology back in the dark ages. And I says that you could uh, take a great ape, manipulate its environment and its food supply and predict you'd arrive at a human being. And I actually defended my thesis uh, successfully. And one of the things that's been fascinating to me is we obviously concentrated on the human genome, but the bacterial microbiome genome is, is actually far more important. Our microbiome is, I think, our early warning system. And because about 99% of all the genes that make you and me up are actually non-human, they're bacterial, they're viral, they're fungal, I think, and a few others think, that we've actually uploaded most of the information processing about interacting with our environment to our microbiome, because the microbiome is capable of almost instantaneous uh, changing uh, and information processing that we actually don't have the ability to do. And we're beginning to realize, and, and you've been on the forefront of this, and I like to think that uh, in my little neck of the woods, we're beginning to understand that the microbiome is not only how we interact with plant materials and get information from plant materials and also defuse plant materials like lectins, but probably more importantly, our microbiome teaches our immune system whether a particular plant compound is a friend or foe, how long we've known that plant compound, there are lectins in everything, but the longer we've interacted with lectins and the, and the longer our microbiome has interacted with them, the more our microbiome kind of tells our immune system, hey guys, it's cool, we've known these guys for 40 million years, chill out, they're a pain in the neck, but we can handle them. And then from an evolutionary perspective, if you then look at modern foods, say the grains and the beans, which we started interacting with 10,000 years ago, which is a blink of time, our microbiome has never interacted with those sorts of foods. And these are foreign substances. And what I go into the book is fast forward to 500 years ago, all of us in America, despite what uh, Donald Trump would say are not Americans. Uh, we're from Europe, Asia. And so none of us were exposed to a lectin from the new world until Colombian trade started 500 years ago. And one of the things that's been very impressive to me from what my patients have taught me is that five 
500 years to get to know a new lectin is speed dating in evolution. And I don't, I don't think it can be done. And there's some of our most cherished foods, uh, the nightshade family that you mentioned, potatoes, eggplant, tomatoes, peppers, goji berries. They're actually an American plant. They were taken to China and trade. The American beans, cashews, and peanuts, um, the American seeds, sunflower seeds, chia seeds, pumpkin seeds, and the squash family uh, are American plants. So these are very modern foods, and we really have not had time to deal with them. Plus, the American grains, corn, and quinoa, these are very uh, abnormal lectin-containing foods, and we can talk about that. So mitochondria, uh, you and I uh, agree that mitochondrial flexibility is probably one of the really unique things that made humans humans. We are the fat storing ape. There are no other great apes that successfully store fat. Chimps, gorillas, orangutans carry 3% body fat. Uh, yeah. Most of us uh, will never, ever... <laughs> percent body fat. Even our most accomplished bodybuilders can't do that. And as I tell women, uh, it's a, if you think about it intellectually, it's a really stupid design to store fat because we are the only ape that has fat babies. And any woman would, will tell you that that's really dumb to have a fat baby. Uh, so there's a reason we've done that. And as you and I know, the reason is we're designed to be able to access fat for fuel. And it's really the reason why this crazy species has taken over all parts of the world, whereas any other species has never been able to do that. And that's because we can cycle back and forth to having our mitochondria use fat for fuel or to use glucose for fuel. And we're designed to shift very quickly uh, in 24-hour time periods to doing that, even within 24 hours. And you and I, I think, agree that the fact that we no longer have that metabolic flexibility and that we've been constantly bombarding our mitochondria with overload of glucose as a fuel that really underlies, I think, most disease processes. Yes, indeed. And uh, when you say we, you're referring, about, re referring to the social we, because I know quite clearly that you have been a longtime practicer of intermittent fasting going for up to 18 hours or, or even more. Do, if, yeah. yeah, and you've been doing that. So maybe you can share your experience on that. And I've just, I've re recently given me to 14 to 16, but I've, I, I think you're on target and I've shifted more to 18 to 20 hours of intermittent fasting. And, and I think it's a better deal. Yeah, when, when my first book came out uh, back in 2008, Random House bought my book, and I actually had a whole chapter on intermittent fasting. And what I was doing at that time, which I continue to do now, is during the winter from January through June 1st, during the week, uh, I eat all my calories in a two-hour window. Oh, 22, 22 hours. Yeah, wow. so I don't I don't eat breakfast, I don't eat lunch, I eat my calories between six and eight o'clock at night. And I do that because my wife and I are at home at that time. If I was really smart, I would have done it much earlier in the day, but um, you know, you gotta be practical in one way or another. Socially so, pragmatic. Exactly. So I so I when I we had this whole chapter, my editor said, 
you know, you're obviously a nutcase. We know that, but <laughs> you can't put that in here because. And I said, no, 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 no. You know, here's the research. Here's the animal studies. Here's my own personal data. No, this has got to stay. She said, okay, I'll give you a page and a half, but you got to tone it down. And I think it's really funny because ever since then, of course, intermittent fasting has, you know, obviously hit mainstream. Uh, but for the last 10 years, I've actually, from January through June, I eat all my calories in a two-hour window. Now, I take time off on the weekends and I eat two meals a day, but I always skip breakfast. And so I just, you know, four weeks ago, I just finished my winter fast, if you will. Now, why do I do that? Uh, You and I, again, food was a very rare thing to find. And we, again, our metabolic advantages, we're really good at starvation. Mm -hmm. And it's what allowed us to survive. And we know that during food scarcity, uh, not only do our mitochondria rev up, but more importantly, our entire uh, immune system and genetic monitoring basically says, look, times are tough. Uh, We don't know when the next good food supply is going to come we've got to make it through to that next period. And so we're going to look at every cell in our body and we're going to look at whether they're pulling their own weight or are they odd? Are they not very fuel efficient? And we're going to jettison them. We're going to create apoptosis and tell these cells to commit suicide. Uh, It's kind of like if we were in a hot air balloon and we're heading for the mountain and we're going to crash we got to start throwing things overboard to get more lift. And I think that's a fundamental principle that you've known for a number of years that I certainly have preached for a number of years. And the more we understand that that's how uh, successful aging occurs and study successful agers, one of the things that's fascinating, particularly in an animal model, is that this intermittent fasting, this challenging uh, is the way to do it. And Walter Longo from USC, who's a colleague, would echo this. Uh, you've got to have these periods of time. Um, Dale Bredesen, who I happen to think uh, is probably the smartest researcher in dementia, really thinks that we should have a minimum of 14 hours between two meals, preferably 16 hours Um, And we can go into that as well. But yeah, I think the tide is definitely turning and to understand how we were designed. Well, what is your what is your summer schedule from June to uh, January? So in in summer, uh, in general, we'll have a smoothie that's actually in my book uh, with some MCT oil in it and a half an avocado, some romaine lettuce, some spinach, uh, half a lemon and a little bit of vanilla stevia. And then I won't eat lunch. And then a dinner, same sort of thing. I try to pack all my calories in between about six and eight o'clock at night. Um, okay. Yes. Yeah. Now you'd mentioned or made a comment on cycling, which I think is really a crucial principle in biology that really is very 
not well appreciated among most clinicians, even astute clinicians is my experience. And I missed this because as I started to practice this uh, fat for fuel approach, which I described when I, I thought it was the ideal diet. So I stuck on it and boy, I got hit in the head really hard until I under realize that you have to cycle this thing that yes it's a good strategy to undergo it while you're not burning fat for fuel but once you are you can't continue that you have to cycle it so uh you know you've you've really been in doing this for a while and i would appreciate your insights and comments on that yeah i mean again you have to look at it evolutionary we it really was feast or famine and when we hit large amounts of food, whether it was a fruit tree or whether it was uh, honey or whether it was a wildebeest or a mastodon, uh, there was no food storage system. And people tend to forget that. Nobody walked out of their cave and said, what's for breakfast? Uh, There was no refrigerator to have organic berries in every day. And so when we chanced upon fuel, then our beautiful design is we could eat actually large quantities of this stuff and store it as fat because very shortly, whether it was a period of drought, whether it was a period of winter, we were going to regress. And I like people to think of circadian rhythms. And obviously we have a 24 hour clock. We have a moon clock. We have seasonal clocks. And what I like people to think of is that we have a period of, every year where it's a growth cycle. And you can look at that with any preacher, including uh, trees. And that's a time of growth and it's a time to reproduce. And then there's a time of involution, uh, whether it's a tree dropping its leaves, whether it's an animal hibernating. And that's a time where we kind of take stock of everything. And that, that, yin and yang, that flow that would happen every year on seasonal basis has completely been lost. And we have to have periods where we actually do consume excess calories. And then we have to have periods where the exact opposite happens. Uh, Years ago, after my first book came out, I was invited to uh, Phoenix, Arizona by a uh, blogger by the name of Kiefer. I don't don't know if you've ever checked out his blog. Kiefer uh, said that you if you're you should burn fat for fuel most of the time, but every week you should have what's called carb night loading. And uh, he chanced upon this by accident. Um, but he made a career out of it and a few, and he's actually uh, picked his brain and he's picked my brain. And I think he's absolutely right. I agree. That's the conclusion I reached too. At least once a week. Yeah. At least once a week, you've got to just basically overload with carbohydrates. Now I think they ought to be decent carbohydrates. Mm -hmm. Lectin free carbohydrates. Lectin free (laughs) carbohydrates. Exactly. But yeah, I think uh, you're right. Uh, one of the th- things I liked about you for over the years is you go out on an extreme, and many <laughs> times it, it bites you in the foot. And, and and thankfully, you're you're man enough to say, "Here's what I did, and here's what didn't work out, and here's what I've learned." And 
Unfortunately, in, in the health business, it is so rare to see someone who will take a position and then will not learn that that position had a lot of good stuff, but here's a couple things that were wrong. And, you know, here's what I did about it. And I like to think that if you read my first book, you'd say, wow, you know, in Dr. Gundry's second book, he said, look, I was wrong about this. I was wrong about this, and I was wrong about this. And here's why I was wrong. But there's oh, a just, lot of folks, as I you know. I just realized you weren't on an aura ring. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah. It's got to be in airplane mode, though. Uh, uh oh. <laughs> no, no, really, you got it because I've measured it with a, um, a microwave meter and it's significant radiation. So it's easy to do. You could only need to download the data once a day. But that's that's, that's a ta that's a tangent. Sorry about that. All right. Let's no, get, let's get back. Let's get back. Let's get back to the topic. Elected. So, you know, we've descri described what they are, but why the heck should we be concerned about them? Well, folks, one of the primary issues is autoimmune diseases. Your body starts beating up on itself. And I'll let you expand on that, too. And also want to note that you've treated a, a major celebrity, uh, Tony Robbins, who's, you know, not many people don't know Tony Robbins. And he came to you because his health was was suffering and you were able to implement this program and you radically improved his health. So you can take it from there. Yeah. Um, and, and Tony will tell you this. Uh, and I'm actually speaking at one of Tony's events in uh, New York city in uh, three weeks, but uh, Tony uh, is an amazing guy as, as anyone who knows Tony and uh, Tony, uh, you know, does these crazy 18-hour days, uh, seven days in a row. And uh, quite frankly, Tony was flagging through some of these things. And, and one of the things I did early on with Tony is uh, convince him to start consuming a lot of uh, MCT oil during his uh, performances. And it, he's so cute. Uh, Sage, his wife, would always send me a picture of some new little packet of coconut oil that she'd found. And, but uh, one of the things I asked Tony to do is take lectins, uh, the major lectins away from his life. And I like to think that it's worked well. And, and Tony's been nice enough to send an, a number of other people my way to let me play with. Um, <laughs> so um, cause Tony has helped so many people and I'm happy to, you know, help, uh, his colleagues and friends. Yeah. Well, he, you're really leveraging your impact by, uh, affecting real significant influencers like Tony. So thank you for doing that, but let's expand on the autoimmune component. Cause that's such a yeah. crucial role. And, you know, I used to think, and I still believe that vitamin D is a big factor and I'm sure you do too. I mean, it Dude. really is crucial. I mean, if you have an autoimmune disease, you've got to get vitamin D, and ideally vitamin D from the sun. But what I fail to appreciate is the power of these lectins in catalyzing this disease process. I just simply missed it. So why don't you educate us on this on this note? Well, let me. Um, I think one of the things that I talk about in the book that really made me hyper focus on lectins was a guy who's a friend of mine was a very early adapter of, of my first program. And I call him Tony in the book. And Tony had really bad vitiligo. And that's what Michael Jackson had, where the pigmentation is lost. And vitiligo is an autoimmune disease. And what happens is we attack 
the pigment forming cells in our skin called melanocytes. And melanocytes are actually nerve cells. They're modified nerve cells. They migrate from the neural crest to our skin in embryonic development. And so when Tony started on my program, uh, a few months later, he came up to visit me and he says, you're, you're not going to believe this. Uh, you know, my, my vitiligo is gone. And I'm looking at him and I'm going, wow, you know, that's impressive. And he said, how'd, you, how'd that happen? Well, you know, I could have said, well, this is a very anti-inflammatory diet and it's high in antioxidants. But because I'm a researcher, uh, I said, yeah, it's too simple. So I, so I said, hmm, melanocytes, melanocytes, nerve cells. Uh, what's the target of lectins in insects? They're nerve cells. So I said, son of a gun, could it be that, you know, lectins are why he's attacking his nerve cells. And what I've done is I've removed lectins from his diet. And just to fast forward, I lost track of him for a number of years. And I was on a panel, a uh, health panel in New York City two years ago. And I saw him and he's covered with vitiligo again. And I said, what, what the heck happened? And he says, oh, you know, I fell off, you know, and I really get, get back on. I said, well, this is a great experiment. Come on. You know, here, you know, here's, here's the list. Go for it. And we were just on a panel at Harvard uh, two months ago, and he's chairing the panel. He says, I got to show you, everybody, vitiligo is gone. And he says, because I took lectins back out of my diet. And it sounds so silly, but, you know, here's the proof. And so years ago, I was talking with uh, Lauren Cordain, you know, the father of the paleo diet, who doesn't get enough credit. Uh, and he, he said, you know, I think there's this thing called molecular mimicry, where lectins, the, we recognize all proteins by a molecular barcode. And I talk a lot about this in The Plant Paradox. And one of the blessings I've had is I'm a, I'm a transplant immunologist because I wanted to put a pig heart in a baboon and have it survive for more than a few minutes. And so I'm really good at tricking the immune system and understanding what the immune system is looking for. So when people with autoimmune disease came to me after my first book came out, I said, I don't know anything about autoimmune disease, but I know a whole lot about what the immune system's looking for, so let's play. Found is that lectins actually make you shoot yourself in the foot. They resemble proteins in the thyroid gland, they resemble proteins in your joint spaces, they resemble the myelin sheath proteins, they resemble proteins in nerves, and why one person attacks their skin with vitiligo or psoriasis and another person attacks their thyroid or their joints in rheumatoid arthritis, I'm not smart enough to know yet, but I can tell you that the underlying factor in all these disease processes is a penetration of the gut wall by lectins and also their co-travelers, which are lipopolysaccharides. Uh, LPSs, which I don't swear, but in the book, I call them little pieces of shit because that's what they are. 
And you're right. Vitamin D, one of the things that I found very early in all, all my autoimmune patients is they had profoundly low levels of vitamin D. And I was shocked that some of these people, I would have to give 20, 30, 40,000 national units of vitamin D3 every day to get D levels up towards 100. And interestingly, I found that vitamin D levels, when you finally sealed the gut, and that can take some time, mm-hmm. all of a sudden their vitamin D levels went sky high and I could back down and on the I always thought I thought it was due to a SNP or single nucleotide polymorphism, but it's leaky gut. Who would have known? (laughs) It's the least happens. So vitamin D is essential to tell the stem cells at the bottom of the crypts in the villi to grow and divide. And without vitamin D stimulating them, they just sit there and they don't repair the gut. And I think. I think plants are so intelligent, it's, uh, it's shocking. Uh, I think one of the plant strategies is that if you have a low vitamin D because you can't absorb it, then you can't repair your gut. And you're a horrible predator. Uh, and you won't reproduce and you won't walk and you'll go away. So vitamin D is, is really one of the keys to autoimmune disease. And The other thing is uh, lectins are the other key. And I've been blessed by knowing uh, hundreds, now thousands of autoimmune patients who I call canaries because they react almost instantaneously to lectins. And every, it's interesting, everybody has their own certain lectin or lectins that they really react to. Uh, It's interesting, uh, this morning I have a woman who uh, has rheumatoid arthritis and her rheumatoid markers or anti-CCP3 markers had gone up and her IL-17 had gone up. And I said, all right, what are you doing? You know, what's going on? She says, oh, no, no, I'm perfect. You know, I know your list backwards and forwards. And I said, no, there's something. She says, you know, it's funny you should mention that because we got your book and my son said, hey, mom. Uh, you know, you're not allowed to have almonds with peels on them because the peel has a lectin. And she said, what? I've been eating almonds right and left. And then I said, boy, your son's right. You know, I have almonds. And, you know, I had another woman who was going on a cashew binge and her markers came up and she had forgotten that cashews um, were an American bean. So um, a relative of poison ivy. Exactly right. I mean, do you really want to chew on poison ivy? I I think not. And, uh, you know, cashew workers, cashew pickers get horrible burns on their hands, um, just like pepper pickers do. Uh, So uh, these plants have an amazing defense system. So what I found is that through molecular mimicry, we attack ourselves. And once you remove that... uh, trigger and you seal your gut, things get better. And I see lots of people who have been on various autoimmune protocols and gut healing protocols. And I think what the difference is that my patients have taught me is that if you're out on a boat and you're taking in water because you have holes in the bottom of the boat, 
you can bail water all you want and you'll keep the water out of the boat. But if the holes keep occurring, you're going to need a bigger and bigger bucket. And I think most of the anti-inflammatory programs and autoimmune programs are just giving people bigger buckets. Well, what I think easier is seal the holes and then water won't come in. And I'm convinced and others are convinced that lectins and some of the seven deadly disruptors are what are making the holes. So let's get the hole makers out of it and give some vitamin D and let them heal their gut. Yes, I, sh I sure wish I would have known that when I was practicing because I I can remember a number of patients with vitiligo and I would just threw my hands up. I had no idea what to do, but something so simple as this lectin exclusion approach could have been so profoundly effective. And it's not just relatively uncommon diseases like vitiligo, it's all the autoimmune conditions like multiple sclerosis and inflammatory bowel disease and rheumatoid oh, yeah. arthritis. I mean, you name them, there's a lot, there's millions of people suffering with these diseases. And, it, and it's part of the solution. I, I'm not sure if it's the only solution because there's a lot of other variables that need to be embraced. And you discuss some of the profound comprehensive principles later in your recommendations that, that, that cover this. But is this a big part of the equation or the solution rather? Oh, it really is. I mean, I'll, I'll give you an example. This morning, we got a phone call. Uh, I'm seeing a, a little little boy in August for the first time with Crohn's disease. And he's been on my program uh, just because they got the book for two months now. And he's, he's actually been thriving. And yesterday, for some unfor... I, I don't know why, the mother decided to give him a very large bowl of grits, corn grits. And they called this morning in a panic because he was having terrible abdominal pain and started having bloody diarrhea this morning. And, you know, my staff and I are looking at each other like going, what, you know, why would you do this? Uh, you know, I was just eclectic. And I mentioned a young woman who has Crohn's disease in the book who her doctor, well-meaning doctor at the Mayo Clinic told her that food had nothing to do with Crohn's disease. Um, and she had been cured of Crohn's disease with my program, but he told her it was the placebo effect. <laughs> They still laugh at that one. But so she ate a couple of Christmas cookies after she got off the phone with him. And of course, it was like throwing a bomb in her stomach and she had horrible cramps and diarrhea. And it, like she told me, she said, we, we Skyped and she said, why don't doctors see this? And like I talk about in the book, you know, we can't see unless our eyes are open. And, you know, one of the things that benefited you, you're a DO, you luckily uh, were not down the allopathic path. And so you luckily had your eyes open. And I was lucky enough uh, when I met the guy who changed my life, Big Ed, uh, who cleaned out his coronary arteries with a diet and supplements to have my eyes open. And I said, this is not a placebo effect. This is not chance. How did this guy do this? And luckily, because of my evolutionary background, I was able to work together. So, 
Great. Well, let's talk about two common lectins that are not in the nightshade family that I think uh, people would really appreciate more information on. One of them is milk. And we talk a lot about the benefits of raw milk on our site. But it turns out about 2000 years ago in Northern Europe, there was a spontaneous mutation in the cows up there that caused them to make the uh, derivative of a casein protein, the A1. And it would normalize A2. And that just caused havoc on steroids. So why don't we address that? Because it's not just raw milk. It's the dairy and all the dairy, all the dairy products that are manufactured from them or produced from them. Yeah. You know, ca- casein A2 uh, is the normal protein in milk besides whey. And it's present in sheep. It's present in goats. It's present in water buffalo. But like you said, uh, most of our cows, in fact, most of the cows in the world are casein A1 producers, and they make a lectin-like protein uh, called casein A1, which is metabolized in our gut to make beta caseomorphine, which is a very interesting that can attach to the beta cell of the pancreas and incite uh, an autoimmune attack on the pancreas. And I and others are pretty convinced that a ton of type 1 juvenile diabetics, it's because of the casein A1 in the milk. I've been convinced through the years that not only is it the problem, but the people who think they're lactose intolerant or that milk gives them mucus, it's the casein A1. And one of the reasons I know that is so many of my lactose intolerant patients will go to Italy and have gelato. And they come back and they say, you know, it's amazing. There's no lactose in Italian (laughs) gelato because I can have all the gelato I want and I'm perfectly fine. And I'm going, well, actually, there's tons of lactose. Uh, There's casein A2, not A1. And you've been reacting to casein A1. And You're right. Raw milk is great as long as it came from the right cow. And I even bring a example in the book of a lovely woman who who had arthritis, got her off of all her drugs, and she was visiting a friend in the Napa Valley. And her friend said, I've got some great raw yogurt, cow yogurt for you. And my patient said, eh, I better not because uh, I, I, I have to have A2 milk. She said, don't be ridiculous. You're following this Gundry guy. He's a nut. <laughs> this, is, this is raw milk. You'll be fine. So to be nice, she has a couple of tablespoons of yogurt. And that night, uh, she has some sentinel joints in her left hand that blew up like a toad. And she called me the next morning, not in panic, but in delight. And she said, you were right. You know, it, it is the breed of cow. I've, you know, I've never felt so bad, so good. Um, and again, my patients have taught me that um, what thinks we, we think is kind of craziness, we can actually measure this stuff in blood work. And a lot of people that I would have tossed off as crazy 15 years ago, there's an underlying problem that needs to be addressed. And we can see these things with, with modern blood tests, quite frankly. 
Yeah, and for those who want to still have their dairy, uh, it's still possible, but for the most part, you're gonna have to avoid almost all commercial dairy because they mix milk from all these different herds and there's no way you can segregate that A1 from A2. So it has to be from a local farmer. And I believe, is it the Jerseys that make the A1? Or is it- Yeah, the, Jerseys yeah, Holst, are half Holst, A1 and A2, Holsteins are A1. Holsteins are A1, are, okay. There are movements now. Uh, in California, there's A2 milk. It's actually an Australian company. Uh, there are movements in Ohio to have A2 milk. Uh, for those of you who are ice cream fans, uh, Jenny's ice cream, which is quite famous, she gets all her milk from uh, Snowville uh, Creamery, which is an A2 farm. I've actually talked to those people. They get it. Um, there have been attempts to introduce A2 milk on a larger scale, and quite frankly, they've been crushed by the American Dairy Council for obvious reasons. Uh, you and I know that coming up against big business and big pharma and big chemical is is a hard job. Yes, indeed. So, uh, so <clears throat> most physicians who have some understanding or training in, in nutrition will initially put pa patients on a gluten-free, casein-free diet. And we've just addressed the casein in, in really great detail that I think will help people understand it. But the other is gluten-free. And it, it turns out that oh, gluten isn't an issue. It's not the big one. It is actually the relatively minor component, but there's this, this component called the wheat germic glutenin, which is far more severe. So why don't you enlighten us on that? Yeah, I think one of the things that have gotten us into trouble uh, over the last 40 years is this whole grain goodness. And many traditional cultures uh, have tried to get the haul off of grains and eat their bread white or their pasta white or their rice white. And there's a nasty uh, little lectin called wheat germaglutinin in Paul in the wheat germ. And if, if you want to produce heart disease in an experimental animal, one of the best ways to do it is wheat germ, uh, give the animals wheat germ. And wheat germaglutinin <laughs> actually- A common health food in the 70s. <laughs> Yeah. Oh, yeah. Uh, at Loma Linda, I was putting wheat germ on all my stuff and wondering why it's big facts. Um, but the the interesting thing about wheat germaglutinin is that it binds to insulin receptor sites. And unlike, so lectins are fascinating in that they'll they'll hit docking sites on a cell and they'll hit insulin receptors. Now, normally, a normal hormone will dock, give its information, and then release. What happens with these pseudo-hormones is they don't respond to the same uh, information. So they dock, but then they never leave. So it's kind of like uh, if they hit the insulin receptor on a fat cell, they turn on lipoprotein lipase, and you just pump sugar into the fat cell and turn it into fat constantly. In muscle cells, the exact opposite happens. They'll attach to the insulin receptor of a muscle cell, but in that case, it actually blocks insulin from uh, delivering sugar into the cell. And I see so many, uh, oh, long-distance runners who are carboholics, 
who you know look like concentration camp survivors uh, because they're really you know cachectic and sarcopenic because they blocked actually all the insulin receptors in their muscles. Um, so, and, and my wife used to run the Boston Marathon, and thank goodness she gave that up when I showed her the data. But um, as 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 Mark Sisson and other people. But one of the interesting things that I talk about in the book is long ago, things that promoted weight gain from a given number of calories would be miraculous. And the lectins like wheat germagglutinin, the lectins in beans are miraculous ways of making us store fat. You could have realized that because the only way we've ever been able to fatten an animal for slaughter is to give them grains and beans and some antibiotics. And if that's how we fatten animals, guess what? Uh, that's how we fatten us and works really well. Yeah. Now, and some people uh, observe that when they travel to Europe and they have the bread over there, they don't notice a problem. And that's because the lectins have been removed because they made the bread the way it was supposed to be made. So well, yeah, let's, and, let's and they- Right. And what, what's happened in Europe, of course, is that they've always used traditional methods of raising bread. They use yeast or sourdough. And yeast and bacteria are actually pretty good at breaking down the gluten molecule and other lectins. And the idea of a French person having a whole wheat croissant is just an <laughs> And I mean, and now we're seeing whole wheat pasta over in Italy and tourists, and it's like, what? You know, these guys have figured this out. What are we doing? The other thing that you're a big spokesperson against, and I am too, is glyphosate. Mm -hmm. And of course, it's, it's banned in Europe for very good reasons. And so, as you and I both know, this miserable chemical roundup is used on all conventional uh, grains and beans and flax. And it is in the animals we eat, and it's in all of our baked goods. And as, as you know, it's in our wine in the United States. And this stuff potentiates gluten to people who are not even gluten sensitive. And as you know, and I know, it totally screws up the way our liver manufactures the active form of vitamin D, it, it hits cytochrome P450. It's one of the reasons that the Europeans are, are so far in health, and it's one of the reasons why so many of my patients can go back to Europe and eat their traditional diet and think they're cured, and now they can start eating bread, and they come back and eat a piece of bread, and bam, the whole thing starts all over again. Yeah, not, and not only does the glyphosate chelate important minerals out and really disrupt the shigamate pathway and decimate our, our microbiome, but it also, as I understand it, increases uh, the uh, leaky gut, which allows more of the lipopolysaccharides to enter the bloodstream and just contribute to this whole issue. So yeah. they work synergistically with the lectins. It's a one-two bad punch for you. Yeah, absolutely, absolutely. So I'm wondering, having been a professor at Loma Linda and the majority, and I've never been there, uh, I've certainly known many 
friends who were, were Seventh-day Adventists, it's Seventh-day Adventist University, uh, and most of who are vegetarians. So what is the expectation there as a faculty member and how many, what percentage of the people uh, uh, in the community are vegetarians and what has been the response of that community to your lectin message? Well, so I'm not an Adventist, uh, although uh, I've done many mission works uh, for the Adventists, and uh, they, they do really good work. Um, I ate Adventist vegetarian diet pretty much for 15 years, and I've never been sicker in my life. I, uh, <laughs> you know... It, I, I used to weigh 228 pounds despite running 30 miles a week and doing half marathons on the weekend and going to the gym one hour every day. Wondering why, you know, I had high blood pressure and prediabetes and heart disease and I was running with, uh, you know, uh, spleas to protect them. And it wasn't until I realized that that's a pretty good diet to, you know, cause arthritis. And quite frankly, uh, we have a fabulous orthopedic department at Loma Linda um, uh, because the grains are pretty doggone mischievous for that. But the thing that I think is interesting, uh, I've through the years been good friend with the head of the Adventist uh, Health Study, Dr. Cardiologist. And one of the things that I've learned following the Adventists uh, and following Gary Murray is that animal protein uh, is unfortunately pretty mischievous in terms of aging us. And I hate to say that because I grew up in Omaha and Milwaukee and you know where, where meat is king. And uh, one of the things I did learn from the Adventists is that um, animal proteins, certain animal proteins do contribute to aging. And in the Adventist health study, the vegan Adventists, have the longest lifespan. And then behind them are the lacto-ovo vegetarians. And then behind them are the pescatarians. And then finally, there's the real cheaters who eat chicken. And, and I can tell you, uh, having lived among the Adventists, that uh, it's not a secret, they do cheat. Um, and, but it is interesting that the longest living of the Adventists, who are very long living, are the vegans. Now, I take care of a lot of vegans because of my association with Loma Linda. And as a general rule, the vegans are some of the most unhealthy people that I have met. And, <laughs> and, and several reasons. Yeah. The, the, they are, in this country, grain and beanitarians. They are not vegetable-itarians. And I have nothing against a, you know, a high vegetable diet. In fact, I'm, I'm a wonderful vegetable predator. But the other thing that we see in the vegans is they, they somehow fancy, fanciful thinking that they will convert short-chain omega-3 fats into EPA, the long-chain omega-3 fats, and they absolutely positively do not. And our brain is about 70% fat, and 50% of that fat is DHA. And there's beautiful longitudinal studies now showing that people with the highest omega-3 index 
have the largest brains as they age and the largest areas of memory, the hippocampus. And people with the lowest levels of omega-3 index have the most shrunken brains and the smallest areas of memory. So, and vegans have no excuse anymore. There's algae-based DHA, uh, which I fill them full of. So, yeah, I, I guess it's the lesser of two evils, like taking oral vitamin D if you can't get the sun. Yeah, exactly. I'm not a big fan of algae DHA because I really think you should get it from real food. Well, I agree, extra, but I, I've yeah. got, I've yeah, got. If you don't have a choice, what are you going to do? I got no other choice. Right. So you are have been the director at the uh, Center for Restorative Medicine. That was where you practice, and yep. what 17 years now? Yeah. Okay. So, uh, well, your first rule, which I love, and it's really a novel rule. I'm sure you came up with it because I've never seen it anywhere before. But it makes perfect sense. The rule number one that you've concluded after 17 years of doing this at your clinic is. When uh, the rule number one is what you stop eating is more important than what you start eating. So why don't you tell us how you came to that conclusion? It's really absolutely true. And it's so funny. You see all these things that you're supposed to eat. But um, there was a I, I had the pleasure of training at Great Ormond Street in London, England, and there was a gastroenterology professor who always used to walk around and say, it is not what you eat that's important. It's what you don't eat that's important. And if you take away certain foods, you'll be amazed that uh, it's certain foods that are the troublemakers. And I really kind of thought he was a nut long ago. But the more I think about that and the more I've seen that, it's what I tell people not to eat that makes the difference in their lives. And don't sweat the stuff that you do eat as long as you don't eat certain things. Yeah. And rule number two is taking care of your gut microbiome. But our audience is really quite familiar with that. So we'll skip that one. And for obvious reasons. But rule number three is a bit unusual because it seems counterintuitive. And that is fruit might be as good as candy. So why don't you elaborate on that? And my guess is and I don't think you went in the book, but that is for the majority of people who are not burning fat for fuel. But once they are, that could be part of a healthy carbohydrate that they should have yeah. once or twice a week. Yeah, exactly. Uh, I think part of the problem is the vast majority of Americans are insulin resistant. Mm -hmm. And they one of the things that people should realize is that modern fruit has been bred for sugar for content. Uh, it's interesting. I, a couple of weeks ago, I was down in southern Italy uh, studying the world's oldest people, the, the denizens of a little fishing village called Acciaroli. And I, there was a farmer's market, and they actually had blueberries. And the blueberries were these little, tiny, bitter things that you and I remember as a kid that you had to put about a half a cup of sugar on to make them edible. And I, you know, I grabbed my wife, Penny, and I said, oh, look, you know, real blueberries. Uh, because even in the farmer's market in Santa Barbara, where one of my clinics is, the organic blueberry is about the size of a grape now. <laughs> and, and, you know, oh, it's organic. But, yeah, it's – so one of the things I ask people to do initially is give fruit the boot. And fruit – fructose is, is a major toxin. And you and I know that we take fructose directly to our liver – 
and detoxify it into triglycerides and uric acid. And it, it always amazes me the number of people with gout who fruit or concentrated fruit like wine uh, or beer is one of the underlying reasons that they have gout. The other thing that people should realize is that fructose is also a direct renal toxin. And um, the more fructose I can get out of people, uh, the better. Now, having said that, once you get to a point where you have metabolic flexibility, I think things like berries are probably one of the best ways to carbohydrate load during that day you decided to do that. Yeah, my, well, my, two, fa my two favorites are berries and sweet potatoes, which I was yeah. doing today because I, I do it twice a week on my strength training days. So. Yeah, sweet potatoes are great as well. Um, uh, I'm a big fan of taro root, quite frankly. Uh, I, I try to copy the, the catavans and eat cassava and taro root. But uh, I'll tell you a funny story. Years ago, uh, right before the first book, my wife and I were in June at the Santa Barbara Farmer's Market, and I was taking these gorgeous organic peaches and putting them into my bag. And she says, hey, wait a minute. Aren't you the guy who says give fruit the boot? And I said, yeah, yeah, yeah. But, you know, it's June and it's time to eat fruit. And she says, okay, smart guy, let's do this. This summer, we're going to give up fruit, and we're going to see what happens. And I, you know, I go, oh, come on, no, don't, you know, don't do this. To me. And I put the peach back, and so we gave up fruit for one summer, and uh, we didn't change anything else in our diet. And my wife lost six pounds, and I lost eight pounds. Hmm. And it, it just, it, it brought home to me that again, our great ape ancestors and the reason we have two-thirds of our tongue devoted to sweet taste is we are great fruit predators and fruit was only available once a year and we utilize that fruit to gain weight for the winter and we we should not forget that that there were no refrigerators to store our berries and we got it once a year now you live in florida and i live in california and we're going to have it 20, 365 days a year, but that's not normal. And yeah. so always keep that around. Well, I, I live in north central Florida, close to the ocean, and uh, it's really temperate. So I can gather fruit about nine months of the year. But right. I only eat the fruit that I pick off my own land. That's it. I don't buy any store-bought fruit. So and and when it's I only harp I can only eat it when it's hot when I harvest it. So if it's not growing, that's it. And like peaches, you can all I mean, we've I probably gathered like 10 gallons of peaches, but they were it's two weeks. That's it. No more peaches for the rest of the year. <laughs> yeah, that's exactly right. And I talk about this in the book. One of our problems is that our computer program can't imagine that a 747 could bring a blueberry to Costco in February from Chile. And as I talk about in the book, all these fruits are picked unripe, and they actually have a very high lectin content. And ethylene oxide gas them to make them appear ripe, but they're actually full of lectins that would normally have been dissipated if the fruit had been allowed to ripen normally. And it's just another way we've done ourselves in. All right, well, we're coming to the end of our time together. So I'm wondering if there, if you could summarize any key important points, or maybe we've, we've got a little more time. So if you, if there's something that we didn't cover that you think is important, we could review and and we can close. Yeah, I I think the high points are that people are 
unwittingly allowing lectins into their body. One of the things that's destroyed us is broad-spectrum antibiotics, not only given to us, but also in the animals that we eat. The other thing that has been a real eye-opener to me is the effect of the non-steroidal anti-inflammatories, things like Advil, things like Aleve, ibuprofen, naproxen. These things seriously are, are like swallowing a hand grenade. They actually denude the wall of our gut. Uh, there's new information that as little as four days of taking an NSAID will dramatically increase your risk of heart attack or stroke because it letter, literally lets in all these LPSs and all these lectins into our bloodstream. And, you know, there's even children's Advil now, and it's just, <laughs> it's just horrible uh, what we've done. And drug companies know this happens, and I show the evidence in my book. They've known it, but we've been in the dark about it until recently. Yeah, um, I was I was a pharmacy apprentice in the 70s, early 70s, and I remember when Motrin, which was the first NSAID, well, I mean prior to, I mean after aspirin, ibuprofen, was released, and that, they you couldn't prescribe it for more than a few weeks. That was it. <laughs> and you had the patient that's, that's right, because it was, it was so dangerous. Yeah. Um, now it's over. Yeah. 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 So thank you for reminding me because you did bring up the point in your book about the the dangers of those those NSAIDs from a lectin perspective. So uh, I couldn't endorse your book more strongly. I think if you are a health advocate and have not heard of this, you would be beyond foolish not to get pick up a copy of this and put it in your library. It's really vital information to optimize not only your health, but the health of people that you know that especially if they're struggling with an autoimmune disease, I mean, it's just nuts not to integrate this. It's, it's, if you've been following the fat for fuel approach, it's just a minor tweak, but it is an a very important tweak that I wish I would have known about earlier, because as I said, I, I clearly would have integrated, but it, it is in my new, my new book coming out in the fall. So uh, the, the fat for fuel cookbook, but it's great. Pick it up. You will not regret it. It's a very Great read, lot with the perfect balance between science and and pr pragmatic recommendations. Well, thanks very much. Appreciate it.